If you have your Bible, I encourage you to open those to John chapter 1. We introduced the Gospel of John last week with uh, way TMI, that's too much information. I know that, and it was purposefully so. And today we actually begin unpacking the Gospel of John, and our passage today is John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. Now this passage is kind of like a Billy Graham sermon. It's simple in language, yet profound in its content. John's word choice, if you'll notice, just in a brief reading of John chapter 1, 1 through 5, his language, the words he actually uses, is very, they're very straightforward and almost basic in a sense, but they have a very deep, beautiful, meaningful meaning. And today we begin unpacking it together. But today I want to do something a little bit unusual, I know shocking. Uh, as we unpack John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5, what I actually want to do is simultaneously demonstrate steps 5 through 11 from last week. If you have your sermon notes from last week, you'll see that basically I talked about steps 1 through 4, and today I really want to demonstrate steps 5 through 11 by observing the distant context and so forth and so on. So if you have those notes handy, feel free to grab those. But I want you to notice John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. And what question is John actually answering? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through Him, and apart from Him, nothing came into being that has come into being. In Him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and darkness could not comprehend it. Amen. Right off the bat this morning, I really, uh, just right from the get-go, I want to invite you into the mind of a preacher. Now, a mind of a preacher is quite a weird place. Uh, It has words full of, that look really funny and are really long and confusing. Um, Just... It's a weird place to live, okay? But if you've listened to my sermons for any amount of time, then you may have realized that I preach different types of sermons. Some sermons are full of big words and big concepts. Some sermons are more user-friendly and maybe comforting or maybe not. Uh, Some sermons are more practical in nature, and some sermons are just all up in everybody's business. And I do this very intentionally, and the question is why? Why do I preach different types of sermons? The reason is is because of the goal for when we study the Bible. If you were here last week, what is the aim when we study the Bible? It is to arrive at the biblical author's original intent. So when I speak on any particular passage, I try to capture that particular passage's tone and the author's intent and then communicate it accordingly. If you've been around Christianity for any amount of time, then you'll realize some scriptures are super user-friendly. Some scriptures are just wonderful treatises of truth, such as Romans chapter 8. They're just beautiful. It says this, who can separate us from the love of God? Who doesn't love to read Romans 8? Some scriptures are more practical in nature, such as Philippians chapter 4, when it says, be anxious for nothing. Some scriptures are like, ouch. If you've ever read the book of James, then you know what I'm talking about. If you read the book of James without being convicted about something, then you probably didn't read it, and you probably snoozed through it like I did my English class in high school. Just saying. 
And some scriptures are really like a puzzle. You see the beauty of the whole from the outside picture, but then it's difficult to understand how the pieces are arranged. An example of that are the Psalms. And then some biblical passages are just truth. And John chapter 1 is truth. It's not super practical, it's not super convicting, it's not super confusing, although I'll probably confuse you some. John chapter 1 is just a wealth, a rich and deep passage of truth. But don't let that fool you. John chapter 1 isn't just some truth, it is the truth. And the most important truth in the whole universe is contained in John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. John 1, 1 through 5 is the very core of the gospel. John 1, 1 through 5 is the foundation of everything we believe. It is It unfolds for us the real Jesus. It unfolds for us the light of the world. And John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5 tells us of God's final victory over darkness. And at the center of this passage, John really answers a simple yet profound question. He answers the question, who is this Jesus guy? So with this in mind, if you have your Bible, I encourage you to once again open them to John chapter 1. And as I stated before, we will begin by observing the distant and immediate context of our passage If you were to read John chapter 1, if you read the whole piece, then you would notice that John 1, 1 through 5 is is the first part of John 1, 1 through 18. Now, John 1, 1 through 18 is basically the introduction to the entire gospel. Some theologians call it the prologue. I hate the term prologue, that we label it. The reason is because prologue sounds so boring. It's like opening a novel, and then you, what's the first thing you see most of the time? You see a preface. And what do we all do with the preface? We all skip it because we all think that's boring, right? The prologue is so far from it. John 1, 1 through 18 really encapsulates the entire gospel in all of 18 verses. If I could put it in a picture form, John 1, 1 through 18 is a beautiful overlook. If you've ever been to the Grand Canyon, if you've ever been to Rock City, if you've ever been to Bryce Canyon, if you've ever been to Yosemite, then you probably have seen a beautiful natural overlook. I want you to put that image in your mind. That is John 1, 1 through 18. Because when you step out onto a cliff, you do not see many details, you see the whole. My family and I a couple weeks ago, went to Cloudlands Canyon in Georgia. And then you basically step out on this cliff and you see the entire valley from one perspective with few details. But then through the course of the week that we were there, we went down into the valley and saw much of the beauty up close and personal. That is the Gospel of John. When you see John 1, 1 through 18, it is the overlook. It is the overall picture of the entire gospel. And then as we go over the next year or two years or eight years or 25 years, I don't know how long it's going to take me to get through this gospel. Sorry, I don't know. Uh, But we will see details up close and personal. So that is step number five. But before we step into step number six, which is observing the primary passage, I want to ask you all for a favor. Wherever you are, however you may be accessing this, what I want you to do is I want to get you off of the bench and into the game, so to speak. As I read John 
chapter 1, verse 1, I want you to just answer the question, what do I see? I'm going to read the verse, and then I'm going to pause and let you answer that question. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. What do you see? Instantaneously, what do I see as a preacher? I see basically three phrases. In the beginning was the Word, is phrase number one. Phrase number two, and the Word was with God. And then phrase number three, and the Word was God. Right? Right off the bat, that's what I see in verse one. But then I also see something kind of strange. Observation number two is I see this term word, W-O-R-D, repeated three times. Now, from an initial reading of the Gospel of John, we have little to no idea who this word is, or the Greek word is logos. We don't understand who it is until John chapter 1, verse 14. We know that the word is Jesus. I mean, who else is God and then takes on flesh? But the question I have is, why does John describe Jesus, Jesus, or Yeshua in Hebrew, why does he describe Jesus as the Word? Pause on that. I will revisit in about ten minutes. Okay. But let's just unpack the three phrases that we hopefully observe together. Notice with me the first phrase. How does it describe Jesus? Phrase number one, in the beginning was the Word. Phrase number one gives attribute number one of Jesus, that he was pre-existent. If you have your notes, the first blank is pre-existent. In the beginning was. What is the English term was? It is a past tense verb. But in the original language, it's even more colorful. What I say is that reading the Bible in English is like watching TV in black and white, and reading the Bible in Greek is like watching a TV show in high definition color. We see the same basic image, but one sees so much more detail. In the original language, the term was is the verb of continuing action in the past. In other words, this, that before time even began, Jesus was being, he was existing. Jesus was not created. Jesus was not just some human that was crowned with deity. Jesus was not just some great teacher whose disciples elevated him to divine status. No, Jesus was is, and will always be eternally existent. Who is Jesus? Point number one, he was pre-existent. But Jesus is more. Notice the second phrase. In the beginning was logos, was the word, and the word was with God. Who was Jesus? Point number two in your notes, Jesus was in the presence of God. That's what it says, but I'm a little confused, because I'm just going to fast forward to phrase number three real quick, and the word was God. So wait a second, how could Jesus be in the presence of God and simultaneously be God? If you understand Christianity, one of the most basic doctrines that we have is that we have a triune God. That God is of one essence, yet in three distinct persons. The triune God is God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But, we aren't pantheists. I believe Islam believes Christianity are pantheists. We do not believe in three gods, and we're not Unitarian who just believe in God. We believe that God is three distinct persons, yet one essence. The truth is this. The true God is God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, 
who are of one essence, yet three distinct persons. So Jesus was God and was also in the presence of God for eternity past to eternity future. Now, okay, let's just be real for just a second. It, that makes no sense. How could God be one but also three distinct persons? It doesn't make sense. And you're right. It makes no sense to my finite brain. But I find it comforting that it doesn't make sense. Because I don't want a God that I fully understand. Because if I fully understood the nature of God, then he would not be God. The true God must be beyond my anything my imagine, imagination can possibly handle. The true God must be an infinite, all-powerful God who exceeds my ability to comprehend as a finite creation. Track it with me. So who is Jesus? Jesus was pre-existent. He was in the presence of God, but Jesus is more. Notice phrase number three. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Point number three is that Jesus is a person of God. So Jesus was pre-existent. He was in the presence of God, and he is a person of God. But let's just take out the alliteration for just a second. There's three Ps. That makes for a nice message, okay? What is John really saying? Of the word, of Jesus. He's really saying that Jesus is fully divine. That Jesus isn't some God or he is a lowercase God, but that he is fully divine. Perhaps there is no phrase in the entire Bible that has been more misunderstood, more abused, than phrase number three in verse one of John chapter one. You may or may not know this, but an entire cult has centered their view of Jesus around this one phrase. This is Jehovah Witness. They believe that Jesus is a God. They don't believe that he is fully God. And the reason, I'm going to get TMI for just a second, then I'm going to go back to non-TMI. The reason is, is because in the original language, they do not see that there is an article in front of God. What they think it should say is that Jesus is the God. Because the article is missing, Jesus is rather in their eyes that Jesus is a God. But clearly, they didn't understand biblical Greek. Because, in fact, the way that John constructs the original language here in the third phrase of John 1.1 1, 1, the third phrase is of the clearest of all equations in the original language. If I can put phrase number three in English in most plain terms, John, in a sense, writes an equation with words. He says, Jesus equals God with Greek. Jesus is not greater than God. He's not less than God. But the equation is that Jesus equals God. That's the construction in the original language. And then notice what John does in verse 2 of chapter 1. He was in the beginning with God. In a sense, John summarizes the first verse with the second. Okay. I want to push play on a topic real quick. Okay, I paused it earlier, and now I'm going to push play. Okay, I want to talk about this word, word. Okay, just super confusing right there, right? I want to talk about the word logos. Why does John use the term word or logos? This week, or maybe it was last week, I was sitting in staff meeting, and I was sitting around the rectangle table here at Calvary Bible Church. 
And I had a staff person ask me a very profound and uh, difficult to answer question. He asked me the question, he said, why does John use word to describe Jesus? Why doesn't John just say, in the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God? Now, confession time is I had a big goose egg for a response. I told him I really have no idea. But that really doesn't work for sermons, so I have to have answers, right? So that's just part of the job. The reason John uses the term logos, or word, to describe Jesus is because of his audience. Who is John writing to? John is writing to both Greeks and to Jews. A Greek would see that Jesus was the word. He would see that it encapsulates that Jesus has divine power. Listen to this commentator. To the Greek philosophers, the logos, or word was the impersonal abstract principle of reason and order and power in the universe. It was in some sense a creative force and also the source of all wisdom. So when John presents Jesus as Logos or the Word, John is presenting him as the embodiment or personification of eternal and divine power. But to a Jew... Jesus being the Logos signifies something else entirely. Jesus being the Word signifies creation, covenant, and communication. Go back with me to the Old Testament. I mean, teleport 2,000 years earlier, okay? Or more than that to our standpoint, at least 2,500 years. Think about the Old Testament. How did God create with Word? How did God make covenants? How did God communicate to his people? Does this phrase sound familiar? And the word of the Lord came. By logos, by word, God created light. Genesis chapter 1 verse 3. Then God said, let there be light, and there was light. By logos, by word, God made covenants. Genesis chapter 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. By logos, by word, God communicated to his people. Second Samuel chapter 7, verse 4. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying... John purposefully, intentionally, beautifully equates Jesus to the Word to show Greeks that Jesus is of divine, eternal power, is God, and to Jews that Jesus is the Creator, He is the communicator of God, and He is also the one that keeps covenants. All this said, and we are only two verses into the Gospel of John. Um, I'll go quicker in the future, I promise. Okay. Jesus was pre-existent in the presence with God. He's a full person of God. But Jesus is more. Notice verse 3. Notice the fourth attribute to Jesus. All things came into being, were born through him. And apart from him, nothing came into being that has come into being. Who is Jesus? Jesus is, point number four, creator. Jesus is the creator of all things. But why? Why is it important for Jesus to be the creator of all things and of us? Why? I'll say, I'm going to take it at another level. Okay. Why is it absolutely essential and critical to the message of the gospel that Jesus is the creator of all things and creator of all human beings? 
If I could take your mind up to a theological cloud, right, and basically mixing a little bit of philosophy with biblical exegesis, I want you to answer that question. Why is it critical that Jesus be the creator of me and you? Only the creator can redeem its creation. Only the creator of the world can repair and redeem the world. Right? That's the reason Jesus must be creator. Only the creator of the world can repair and redeem the world. Go with me on this illustration. Allow me to illustrate. Let's just say you use your engineering abilities, okay? And you create the world's most complex machine. Maybe it's a transformer or something, okay, that transforms the cars into robots. Or maybe it's like something like a um, nuclear-powered car that then flies around or something. Okay, I don't know. But maybe it's just so complex that you are the only person on the entire Earth that knows how it works. Now, what if that machine broke down for whatever reason? Who is the only person qualified in the entire world to fix it? You. You, as the creator, are the only one that can fix your creation. The most unique invention in the entire world is us. And the fact that Jesus is our creator tells me that he can fix us, that he can redeem us. Only Jesus can be life and light to the darkness and to the brokenness of the world. Jesus knit our soul together, therefore he can re-knit our souls in lieu of our mistakes. He understands our brokenness and can repair our brokenness because he is God and he is creator. But Jesus is more. Notice verse 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If you have your pen, I would encourage you to circle that word, comprehend. I'm going to talk about that here in just a few minutes and unpack that, because I believe the English gives it a little bit wrong connotation. But point number five, who is Jesus? What does it say? In him was, notice the equal sign, in him was life. Point number five, Jesus is life. Now, as mentioned last week, when you read life in the Gospel of John, what should you sub it for? In the original language, there's really two words for life. You have bios, which means physical life, but then you have zoe, which is this word here, which means really spiritual life. So what I would encourage you to do, whenever you read the term life in John, sub in the word, word aliveness, because it gives a better idea of what Jesus came to do. Jesus is aliveness. But notice in verse 4, where is the aliveness? It's not in the world. Notice, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. We so many times search the world for light and for life, but he is the only source. He's the only one that can fix us, and he is the only one of, that can get, grant us aliveness in this world. People, maybe you, wherever you are, people are starving. They're craving. They are famished, they are deprived, they are desperate for the feeling of aliveness. And they search in all the wrong places. Aliveness can only be found in Him. Why? Because He is God and He is Creator. 
When we search the darkness, we can find things in this world that make us feel alive for a moment, but those moments are often fleeting, temporal, damaging, and oftentimes addicting. People search for aliveness in every corner of darkness. Down in a bottle of whiskey, in a computer screen of flesh, in movies to pass the time, we try to find aliveness by living vicariously through 18-year-old athletes playing football. Or we try to find aliveness in bank accounts that spark a sense of security. But we cannot find aliveness, we cannot find life in the midst of the darkness, no matter where we go. The only source of life in this world is Jesus Christ, because he is our creator and he is God. But Jesus is still more. Jesus is more than God, he's more than the creator, he is more than just aliveness, but Jesus is also Light. Notice verse 4 and 5 again. In him was life, and the life was the light to men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Who is Jesus? Attribute number 6. He is light. What I want you to notice about verse 4, I want you to notice the second equation that Paul, or it's not Paul, pfft, that tells you where I've been spending the last two years of my life preaching at Calvary Bible Church. Moving on. Okay. But notice John's equation in verse 4. Notice it's A equals B and then B equals C. Therefore, A equals C. That's the equation. Jesus is life. Life equals light. Therefore, Jesus equals light. You catching that? Jesus equals life. Life equals light. Therefore, Jesus equals light. That's what he says in verses 4 and 5. But let us go down a little bit further down into the nitty-gritty details and into, uh, down into the weeds a little bit more. What is, what is John? We, we know already that Jesus is aliveness. He is Zoe. He is life, right? We already know that. But what is John exclaiming about Jesus by him calling him light? Let me illustrate. Let's say this. Let's say you, wherever you are, let's say you go up in Walmart to the neighborhood market and you clean off your cart with wipes or whatever and you hand sanitize and you wear a mask and you hoodie and all this. Okay. So let's say you go up to a complete stranger in Walmart and you take a book and you slam it down on the counter to this complete stranger and you point to the book and you say, this book is darkness. How would they interpret that? A complete stranger. They would see that the book that you slammed down in front of their face is lies, deceit, and falsehood. But let's say you go to that same complete stranger, you didn't know him before, and you slam a different book down right in front of them, and you say that this book is light. How would they interpret that? They would interpret that the book that you slammed down in front of them is truth, is clarity, and hope. Jesus is light. He is truth. He is clarity. He is holy. He is pure, clean, spotless, different, hope, joy, peace, salvation. He is security and love. And without Christ, we live in what? We live in complete and total darkness. Darkness, falsehood, lies, immorality, debauchery, hopelessness, envy, jealousy, insecurity, blindness, and confusion. Allow me to summarize that without Christ, we are hopelessly surrounded by falsehood, living in darkness. That's what John is saying. And, but with Christ, we have hope, possessing the truth, living and alive in the light. 
But don't miss, we're almost done with verse 5. Don't miss the last part of it. It says, and the darkness did not comprehend it. That phrase exclaims of Jesus' final victory over darkness. I'll explain it. The actual word behind comprehend here is the Greek word to overcome. So catch the implication. The thrust of this verse, the thrust of this verb, is not that the darkness failed to understand the truth about Jesus. In fact, they understood it all too well. What does James chapter 2, verse 19, I believe, says, forgive me, I'm turning there, and I do not have it marked in my Bible. Okay, John chapter, James chapter 2, I'll get there in just a second, forgive me for pausing. Verse 19. What does it say? That the darkness is not a fact that the darkness doesn't understand who Jesus is. In fact, it understands very well who he is. Notice James 2, verse 19. You, the readers of James, you believe that God is one. You do well. The demons who are of darkness also believe and shudder. What is he saying? That the, the demons, the ones that live in darkness understand who God is. So the fact is, on the surface, it seems like verse 5 is telling us that the darkness did not understand it. Really what it is, it says this, in the original language, that the powers of darkness could not overcome it. In other words, it's that the darkness is powerless to overcome the light and overcome God's plan for all creation. Satan and his dark dominions are unable to stop the light and the truth of Jesus Christ from accomplishing its purposes. That is what verse 5 is actually saying. Jesus is God. He is creator. He is aliveness. And he is light. That's what John chapter 1 verses 1 through 5 basically says. Now we go on to step number seven. If you have your notes from last week, step number seven is basically interpretation. Really, your answer to the question, what does it mean? If you notice in the notes from last week, step number seven is interpretation, making an exegetical proposition. What that funny word exegetical, what I mean by that, is answering a simple question, what did John mean for his audience to do or to know back then? What did John intend for his audience to know or to do? This is my step number seven for the sermon. John wants his audience to know who Jesus is so that they would believe in his message. John wants his audience to know that Jesus is pre-existent. He was in the presence of God for eternity past to eternity future without interruption. He wants his audience to know that Jesus is fully God, that Jesus is creator, that he is life, and that he is light. Why? So that they would believe in his message, John chapter 20, verse 31. But step number eight, what do I want my audience to do or to know? I'm taking that big honking thing, okay, and I'm boiling it down to just a few words. I want my audience to understand who Jesus is, and to believe in his message. I want people to understand the identity, the nature, the deity of Jesus in order that we may believe in him for faith, but also in him to live. Step number nine, excuse me, step number ten is application. 
What I would like to do, typically in step number 10, is to unpack step number 8. And really, for my application, I really want to talk to two different groups of people. Group number one are those who need to believe in him. Group number one, and my application to you, if you do not know Jesus Christ, you know, if you've never trusted in him as your Lord and Savior, then believe in him and you shall be saved. But if you have never believed in him, then when the moment you believe in him, he makes you a new creation. He places the Holy Spirit living inside you. He shall grant you aliveness both on this side of heaven and also on that side of heaven, that Jesus is the quencher of your soul. I just have a thought that just come, came into my brain just now. I think someone who is listening to this broadcast, they look inside their soul and they see that their soul is thirsty for something more. Perhaps you have looked in every corner of darkness for answers and for life and for truth. Perhaps you have tried everything in the world to feel whole. And your soul feels thirsty. Jesus is the quencher of souls. He created you. He knows how to re-knit you. But in order for him to come inside, so to speak, you must believe in him and then you will be saved. But then group number two I want to talk to is Christians. And what we don't understand as Christians is that we sometimes think that we only need to believe in Jesus in order to be saved. But what does the scripture actually say? Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, it says that we walk by faith and not by sight. Christianity is faith to believe and also faith to live. We make a mistake that faith is only for those non-Christians. So let's just do this. My application for you is that every day that you wake up, this week and beyond, that once you put your feet in your sandals and you before you get in the shower and you're ready for your day, that you would make a conscious decision to trust and place your faith in Jesus Christ. That as a Christian, we should believe in Jesus, trust in Jesus, have faith in Jesus every day of our life. Believe that Jesus has a plan for our life. Believe that Jesus will keep you from overwhelming temptation. Believe that he will come again. Believe that all of the promises that God has given us in his word will come true. Believe that you can follow him and know him every day. Believe that you are supposed to live a holy life. And to believe that Jesus is the truth, that he is the way, that he is in control, and he knows what you're going through. I think sometimes we picture Jesus as only a human But Jesus is God. He knows exactly where you are. He knows exactly what you are going through. He knows. He knit you together. He is God. He created you. He knows what you need to be repaired. Because he is aliveness. Let me just say it this way. As I see the scripture, I see in verse 4 that Jesus is life. If you are a Christian, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, and if your life is miserable and in the dumps, then let me ask you the question. Are you truly pursuing God? Are you tapping into the Holy Spirit, are you, or are you pursuing the corners of darkness, the corners of flesh that are tearing you down, or are you running towards the light, towards truth, hope, purity, and holy living? The gospel is for life, but it also should be in life. 
The gospel introduces us to life in Jesus Christ by faith in it, but also the gospel to Christians should be in our lives. The gospel gives us life, but also instructs us to believe and have faith in Jesus every day that we live. I would just close with a personal story. Uh, this week I was just you know, meditating on this passage, and as I just saw the truth of the word and just... Just this raw, beautiful truth of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. I just kind of paused in my preparation. I think it was probably on Wednesday of this week. And I just uh, asked myself the question, you know, how does this passage affect Byron Bradshaw? I know, I know my homiletical proposition, but how does it really just trickle down into my life as a preacher? And the fact that Jesus is God is creator, is life and light. It does really two things for me. Number one, it gives me confidence that I believe the truth. The fact that I don't understand Jesus, the fact that I don't understand the Trinity, gives me great comfort. That that because I have the truth, it confirms it all the more. But really, even more than that, it gives me great comfort as a believer in Jesus Christ that the Savior that died for me knows how to re-knit my soul. The Savior that died for me knows what I need at all times. The Savior that died for me will complete His mission in the future. The Savior that died for me will confirm all the promises that He has given. I don't know where you are or what your situation is in your life, but I hope that the truth of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 5, would go to the need of your heart and would provide you comfort in the midst of all of the affliction and trials and circumstances that you face. And would grant you confidence to live your life by faith and not by sight. I plan to close this morning with a passage of scripture that reminds us of our confidence and comfort in Jesus Christ. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. So then, it's a great passage. So then, since we have a great high priest who has entered heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to what we believe. This high priest of ours understands our weakness, for he faced all the same testings we do, yet he did not sin. So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God, there we will receive mercy and will find grace to help us when we need it most. Bow with me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the gospel of John and just it answering who you really are. I thank you that my Savior is not just a human, but he's fully human and fully God, far beyond my ability to comprehend I thank you that he is creator, that he has knit my soul together. Lord, I just pray for my friends that are watching this video, wherever they are. I pray that they would find your comfort and confidence that they have the truth and that their Savior loves them. Lord, I just thank you also for Calvary Bible Church. I just thank you for everyone's continued support of this church. I've just been profoundly amazed at people's faithfulness. Lord, I just pray that you would protect the people, be with them, and I just pray um, for their safety and for their sanctification. In Jesus' name, amen.